Hi, my name's Josh Lingle, and in this session, we're going to talk about how Islam plans to change the world in the next 20 years. And uh, let's start out with a scripture in uh, Hebrews 13 and verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no, uh, have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Hebrews uh, 12 in through 16. And so the whole call of Hebrews 13, 13, is to let us go out with him outside the gates, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. And the whole point of the passage is to move towards the needs of the kingdom and not towards comforts in this life. And I want to talk about in this session doing everything you can possibly do uh, in your power, in your time, in your destiny to finish the Great Commission here on the earth and to understand that as a response to global Islam's resurgence in the West and throughout the world. And I want to present to you tonight the biggest need, that the challenge facing the global church, which is the world of Islam. More specifically, I'm going to share about how Islam is moving into the West and competing for Christian souls and attempting to challenge the very foundation of the church. In 1908, 100 years ago, there was 230 million Muslims in the world, and that was 100 years ago. At that time, there were only about 28 missionaries working amongst the 230 million Muslims. Today, 100 years later, there are 1.57 billion Muslims, and that's at least six times to seven times the number 100 years ago. The largest number of Muslims in the world are in Asia with 900 million, and 600 million Muslims live outside Asia. Only 15% are Arabs or speak Arabic, and only 3% of people in the whole world actually speak Arabic. Muslims represent a majority population in 57 nations, and there are 40 huge populations of minority Muslim nations. Muslims are in every country of the world, and at present, there's only one missionary for every 420,000 Muslims, with 38,000 Muslims going to hell every 24 hours. By the time I'm done with this talk, uh, we'll see some 1,200 Muslims will be in hell. So the need is massive. It's the biggest group that's rushing towards hell today. And do you understand that? Does that pierce your heart? Do you have godly emotions? Do you care and have compassion and empathy for the Muslim world that are lost in darkness? Do you, are you willing to reach out to them with the light of the gospel? Do you understand that? Okay. Jesus told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to make disciples. And if I'm correct, I take that to mean that Jesus had a very practical assignment for the church and for the individuals in that church. He had a very practical idea for what our lives should be about here on the earth. He knew that we would spend what we'd spend our times on, what we'd spend our lives on, and what we'd be doing. He gave his decrees, he gave his assignments, and his request to the church, the assignment of Jesus' sovereign authority, his priestly reign of the universe, would be fulfilled. Remember the church is not a democracy. It's not a democracy. The church is not an oligarchy where there's a few that are in power and those are who reign. The church is a kingdom monarchy. It is a theocracy and it is a theocracy and God reigns. Jesus reigns over the earth. So we are all subjects in his kingdom under the kingdom of God, the kingdom authority. If and only if we are obeying what the king has said to do in our life. Only if. Do you understand that? Does that make sense to you? If you are not obeying the king, then you are not in the kingdom of God, over his reign, over our lives, and so on. If you are not obeying his reign, if you are not obeying his authority, and you're not doing what he said, very practically he told us to do here on the earth, then we are fulfilling 
the, his will on the earth. So included in this will is the Great Commission. Practically, it's a mass migration, a massive migration, or sending and giving support to missionaries who go to unreached harvest fields that have not been reached in places like Mecca, in places like Saudi Arabia, Iran, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, Bangladesh, Nigeria, Turkey, etc., in places we never dreamed of going, is the practical, simple command of the king and his authority for us to go outside the gates. Hebrews 13. Outside the gate, where the gospel has not yet been preached, where we have not yet reached where we're not keeping it under a bowl or the, the seed has not gone forth abundantly into the field. We need to reach the Muslims and make them worshipers of God. Now, practically speaking, what does that actually look like? Well, there's different ways of actually doing this. But the one simple point is that all of us should realize by now that for all of us, all should be doing it. We're either those who go outside the gates or we're those who support those that go outside the gates, or we're disobedient to the gospel. Now let me show you what this actually looks like. Now, a good example we have in history are the Moravian Christians. And Moravian Christians were those post-Reformation uh, Christians. They're very well known in church history. And for every 10 Christians, they would send one into the mission field. And, uh, and the, they would commission these, uh, they would take the very best people that they had, uh, they would uh, send them to the mission field, and it was the responsibility of 10 of those within their church and so on to fully support those missionaries and make sure that all of those needs and, and it were cared for by them. So, if you just take uh, 10, you say 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, Indonesia. Okay, stand up. So then you have a person who's going to Indonesia, and the responsibility of these other 10 is to actually take care of that person. Amen. That our responsibility is to care for their hearts, to care for their lives. Uh, we are the, the Christians and Hebrews that go outside the gates and go public in order to bear reproach and to take care of the visible church that's being persecuted so that we might bring uh, resources to those who, who are suffering and who need help and assistance to finish their mission. She depends on us for food. They depend on us for, uh, like Paul's epistle with Timothy, to go to them. We need our, our intercession, our prayers our prophetic words, and sometimes she's lonely and needs you to go and visit them on the field. You can bring your uh, cultural food, whatever that may, may be, whether it's uh, chicken tikka masala in India or goyabada in Brazil or uh, Chinese food or whatever it is, to bring them that so that they can uh, be embraced and find comfort through the church in her going public uh, outside the gates. It's a simple way to mobilize resources. Commitment to missionaries to either go yourself or to send others globally for the fulfillment of the great commission, the great prize of the church that we will be rewarded for when we get to heaven. Now, cell groups in the church. Christians are supposed to come to maturity. Paul says that you can come to maturity within three to four years of being a Christian you shouldn't be drinking milk for your whole life as a Christian. You should be eating meat. And I take Paul's words, meat, eating meat, to uh, be doing what Jesus said to be doing practically, going outside the gates. Uh, he said, Paul says, by this time I come to you and you should be mature, eating meat, but you're still feeding on the elementary principles of the gospel, baptism, remission of sins. Let's go on to maturity as God may allow. And so the... If, if we've been in the church for 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years and we still don't know what our role is in the Great Commission, that's not it. Every single Christian has a role in the Great Commission. And the discipleship process of the church, a relationship in the church, should be that we pursue the disciples in the church until every single Christian in the church can articulate what it is specifically that they're called to 
and that they have disciples that they are making names, Reese or uh, uh, different, different friends uh, that, that, are, that are being disciples, Dan or, or whoever, Luke, that these are all people that have been discipled, that they're presently disciple, and they're making <laughs> as disciples, teaching them to obey all that you commanded them to do. So going outside the gates, and the Holy Spirit gives assignments. He leads people uh, by what Jesus has said to do in the scriptures and the Bible first, and by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that unless uh, for many are led by the Spirit, they're sons and daughters of God, which means that we need to be led by the Spirit, and he has the leadership, not what I think, but what the Holy Spirit thinks is their calling. But every Christian should have experiences with God and that leading of the Spirit so they can fulfill the Great Commission in the world. He is the king, he is the leader, and he leads us by his spirit. He said he would be with us to the ends of the earth in Acts 1.8. So the group comes around Christians in the church, and the church is a Christ-centered missional community that makes disciples, and they come around that missionary, and they are sent into the world. Now, the scripture says, how can they hear without a preacher? And can can they go unless they are sent? And so we may have a a missionary that's local and we need 10 volunteers to support his life and to send them and so on. Now, Islam comes from the teachings of Muhammad and the Quran. Islam is by nature an enemy of the gospel. Because the Quran denies the Trinity, the crucifixion of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, saying God cannot have a son, the denial of atoning sacrifice of Jesus for our sins on the cross, calling the Bible a corrupted book, and this is just to name a few of the kinds of challenges that the church faces globally, spiritually, and intellectually. So there's a great deal of training that goes into preparing the church to go And you should all, every single Christian in the earth, on the earth, in every church, should be able to answer those questions very easily if you are a proper disciple who is going to finish the Great Commission in all the world. So the result of this public witness, of going public to proclaim the gospel to sometimes hostile areas, is suffering for the church in these nations. It's for these reasons why Hebrews 13, 13 is so important. Now moving towards the needs of the kingdom and not towards comforts in this life. The Muslim challenge presents a final harvest field that's very difficult to reach. And many Muslim nations will, uh, will not let us build churches or send missionaries freely to their countries like places in, in, in Sudan where some two million Christians have been killed They've died since 1983. They've been butchered, beheaded. They've been raped. Uh, Women are sometimes impregnated and so on. And uh, incredible amounts of persecution is happening. I was in the nation of Nigeria uh, three times in the last few years, twice with my wife. After training with missionaries from 37 churches and some 25 national missions organizations, Within two hours of leaving the city, in Jos, Nigeria, 500 Christians were killed. 19 churches were burned to the ground. Pastors' families were hunted down, and they were killed. And we're going back, and we'll continue to go back, again, moving towards the needs of the kingdom, not towards comforts in this life. Uh, I've been held captive. I've had guns behind my, my, my head. I've been had knives and so on, and it can be very challenging. And I understand that. But it is important to move towards the needs of the kingdom. Our blood is the fuel and the means by which to get the Great Commission done. Islam is a state-building religion, so it exports Islamic revolution and dawah uh, while defending its nation from Christian evangelization and political or religious influence. Likewise, freedoms in Western democracies welcome, help, and assist the spread of Islam into a very unsuspecting Christian postmodern West. And that's my topic for the rest of our time tonight. 
how is Islam spreading in the West in, in the past 20 years, creating a cultural, legal, political, social, economic Trojan horse within our borders of the various nation states, constricting the Christian church and challenging her for the souls of many. I want to take some time now to share with you of how Islam is spreading and impacting the nations in Europe, in North America, in South America, and give some perspective on that. The missionary Stuart Robertson makes a significant observation that Islam claims the next century is theirs. Already Western countries that were Judeo-Christian are becoming Islamic Christian. Christian leadership especially needs to grasp the big picture to prepare the church for the challenge that's ahead. There's an advancing agenda to spread fundamentalist Islam. But what is fundamentalist Islam? Well, it can go in many different directions, but basically it goes in two directions. One is jihadist Islamist. Jihadist Islamist. Uh, the other is quietist Islamist. An Islamist is one who wants to establish an Islamic state, a khilafah, over the entire world. They want to establish the Quran and the Islamic law, the Sharia, over the entire globe. So both jihadists and quietists, uh, people who work peacefully within the nation, have the same goal. They want all the nations to have Sharia law over their countries, all over America, uh, all over uh, Europe, over Brazil, over Nigeria, over Sudan, and so on. But jihadists are ones who destroy things by blowing things up and shooting people, beheading them, so on. So they work outside the system of the nation states and the laws and the governments by attacking them with the goal of destroying their cities because if you can destroy their cities, you can destroy their armies and they can no longer substantiate their overall democracy or their worldviews and so on. But quietist Muslims who have the same basic goal as the jihadists to establish an Islamic state over the world work within the system trying to destroy laws sorry, trying to destroy uh, laws and institutions within our countries. They do this by zealously evangelizing Christians and secularists and threaten the common social freedoms of our nations. They also do this by uh, becoming close, working within the systems to constrain the laws and spread through the institutions to establish their Islamist agenda. They favor Sharia law, they favor... Uh, nation states of the Khilafah, and to establish Islam as the highest place. The biggest issue for the church is not the jihadists. It is not the Osama bin Ladens of the world, and so on. The biggest issue for the church is the zealously evangelizing Muslims who are trying to win souls into Islam and take them out of the kingdom of God, and, uh, if, if that's possible. And I want to address that the church, what the church must do to fulfill her God-given role in addressing this challenge. When we look at the spread of Islam through Western Europe, we see over the last 20 years, there have been 30 million Muslims who have moved into the West. The decline of faith in the West has left a vacuum which Islam is poised to fill. Muslims have built some 6,000 mosques in the last 20 years in Europe. There are 6,000 established Islamic nonprofit organizations. 30 years ago, Saudi Arabia gave $87 billion for the Islamization in evangelism and dawah uh, and spread of organizations into the Western world. To keep this in perspective, the Southern Baptists are the largest missionary sending group in the world. The United States sends out some 130,000 missionaries throughout the globe. What the Southern Baptist spends for an entire year on world missions, Saudi Arabia spends in just three days. And in their Islamic mission, they are expanding and challenging as a primary export of their nations. The primary export of Saudi Arabia is not oil. The primary export of Saudi Arabia is the religion of Islam throughout the world. 
Now here are some specific examples. Uh, they have moved, Muslims have moved six million Muslims into France, uh, remembering the riots that happened back in 2005 that spread to 22 different towns in 20 nights. Muslim riders burned 8,973 vehicles. In a total, there was 2,888 arrests that were, uh, that were all Muslims. It was clear that this was a clear example of a clash between two cultures that were not coexisting well. Germany has some 3.7 million Muslims. One new mosque is open per week in Germany. In fact, in one city, 16 churches built uh, and, and paid for a mosque to be built for the Muslims. Muslims didn't even have to build their own mosque, the Christians built it for them. In Spain, the Madrid government donated 8,000 square meters of land to build a $17 million mosque, which Saudi Arabia funded. The land was donated by Spain, and can you imagine donating land from the government to the United States or Brazil or various countries for it to build a church? It just doesn't happen, uh, for the most part, that I've heard of ever in the world. And no, it wouldn't happen in a Christian country like the United States. In places like Italy, in Rome, a new mosque has been built on 30,000 square meters of land. It's larger than St. Peter's Basilica, and it can seat 300,000 Muslim worshipers, and that's in Italy. In England, there is a mosque open every two weeks. 300 of these are church buildings that were turned into mosques. And there's approximately 1,900 mosques and 3,000 to 5,000 other Islamic centers and chronic schools in England. Tens of thousands of Brit, uh, British are converting to Islam. A public survey showed that 45% of the Muslims in England went, uh, want an Islamic state or Sharia law over England. Muslim, uh, Muslims in the UK are actively trying to uh, influence British politics, their economy, uh, their educational systems, uh, their media and culture. And they're even finding high-level voices that want to re redefine Europe's uh, Judeo-Christian heritage to include Islam. And so it's very important for uh, Christian and Christian leaders, um, if they're going to lead, to know what is happening in the biggest group outside God's covenant in the world. How are we supposed to do anything about it if the church is not informed about it, is not trained in it, and is not prepared in order to finish the Great Commission amongst Muslims? Every disciple in our churches needs to be prepared. Islam is growing in places like in South America, in places like Brazil. According to Islamic authorities, there's one and a half million Muslims in Brazil. In fact, the largest Lebanese populated country in the world outside of Lebanon is in Brazil. In Sao Paulo, there's 500,000 Muslims. There are only uh, one and a half million Muslims. If you look at, for example, the country of Kuwait, and yet there's one and a half million in Brazil. So, you so there's a small Islamic nation right within those borders. Three years ago, I was in uh, Sao Paulo and sharing the gospel in a mosque that was there. And there was a young uh, man, a Brazilian man in his 20s, and this young man had converted to Islam. And later in that week, I saw him on national television preaching Islam to all the Brazilians. They assured us that the mosques were filled with Brazilians every week. And uh, you can even find in recent articles that the largest numbers of converts to Islam are coming out of uh, one of the largest Christian denominations in Brazil. Brazil has, is the third largest Christian church in the world. Portuguese is the fourth largest Christian language in the world. So Spanish, number one, English, number two, uh, Mandarin, number three, Portuguese, number four. And if the church in Brazil is not prepared in order to evangelize the Muslims, how are we supposed to uh, lead and finish the Great Commission if we're not prepared to do so? So we've established that Islam is growing significantly in Europe and in the United States, also some in South America. But how is this happening? What are those factors? Well, the first is immigration. Muslims immigrate here to find religious freedom from persecution, peace from civil and international wars, and they come here for educational and economic reasons. Now, immigration for Muslims from Muslim countries into Western nations is in of itself not a bad thing. 
um, in a sense, I defend any Muslim's right, if they're here legally, to live and work and enjoy freedoms of the United States. They have uh, an equal right to be here as I do. As many Christians point out, Muslim immigration presents the church in the West with an unprecedented opportunity to minister and evangelize their Muslim neighbors. We otherwise would not have uh, that opportunity with them if they stood over overseas in their countries. So for the church's mission, immigration is great, but it does become a problem if Muslim groups resist assimilation, uh, the church has not evangelized the Muslims, and the Muslims attempt to Islamicize our host countries. Equal rights for individuals is okay, but special rights for groups of minorities setting up a cultural, legal, political, social, economic, and moral Trojan horse within the United States and Western nations is not okay. A second major reason is that Muslim families have a higher uh, birth rate than most American families. I believe the average Muslim family has three to four children, where the average American family has one and a half children per family. So Islam is primarily growing through biological reproduction. Third is intermarriage attributes to population growth that approximately 70,000 marriages in the U.S. are completed each year involving American women marrying Muslim men. Uh, Islamic law requires that any of these children of the marriages actually go to the man uh, and be raised as Muslims. The fourth most important factor of the church has to do with Muslim evangelism in Dawah. Uh, Dawah is Muslim missions. And we can attribute the success of Muslim evangelists partly to the church's neglect. The largest group converting to Islam in, from the African, is, Af, is from the African-American community. There are 600,000 to some 2 million African-Americans that convert uh, converts, and 80% of them have been affiliated to a church before they actually converted. So where has the church gone wrong? We have not attended to our own communities and seen our black brothers and sisters that have converted to Islam. Islam is a missionary religion, and you'll find that many Muslims are incredibly vocal about their faith. A recent Muslim, uh, Muslim publication claimed that in one year alone, there were 8,000 conversions in New York City and almost 15,000 in Washington, D.C. David Barrett of the World Christian Encyclopedia estimates that 50,000 Christians per year convert to Islam, while only 20,000 Muslims adopt Christianity in the U.S., Muslim sources reported that 34,000 Americans had converted to Islam just within four months after 9-11. And I believe this is because moderate Muslims received so much publicity after 9-11. Americans be so, became sold by a faith that seemed simple and peaceful. After all, the radical Muslims had, quote, hijacked a uh, peaceful religion in Islam. And that's what we were continuously told on television. But as we will learn in our t on our talk in radical Islam, this is not actually the case. Other evangelistic activities include airbrush documentaries on, the t on TV, such as Muhammad, A Legacy of a Prophet, PBS, which presents Muhammad as a model of perfection. The public education system has been used as an evangelistic tool. For example, in California, where parents were surprised to find Islam being taught to their children's school when the teachings of Christianity was forbidden being chased out of the school system. Books were also placed in libraries donated by the Council of American Islamic Relations, CARE. These books tend to gloss over the controversial, violent acts of Muhammad and his followers, making the faith more palatable to the American psyche. Finally, the prison system has provided a large inroad for evangelistic efforts. Muslims have even developed Islamic prison programs, which recruits and trains dozens of chaplains to minister to thousands of inmates. One of the largest populations converting to Islam is in the prison population. The Muslims are in our country. Can we boast similar numbers of converts in Muslim, uh, in Muslim countries coming to Christ, 8,000 and 15,000 in just one city. There's something wrong with this picture. There's plenty of funds available to finance these evangelistic efforts. During the last few decades of the 20th century, Saudi Arabia made available $87 billion for the Islamic mission and ministry in the Western Hemisphere. 
This country has also committed some 70, 80 billion dollars over the next 30 years for evangelistic activities. Kuwait had budgeted 25 billion dollars to blanket the U.S. and Canada with Islamic propaganda. There's 57 Muslim nations, including Saudi Arabia, 40 minority nations, which support the global Islamic agenda in various ways. As the church, we have no nation, no nation state supporting our global mission. We have to trust in the stewardship of the church. We are it. God gave us that mission, and we are sufficient by God's grace. The media is another outlet of Islamist influence. The voice which are often heard in the mainstream media represent an intentional strategy to present a peaceful, moderate face uh, to Islam. This has made the Islamic faith more palatable to Americans who convert. In the midst of many voices on Fox News or CNN, we do not hear people who are discussing the issues that we're talking about here, but we hear much about the peacefulness of Islam from the Muslims themselves. The Council of American Islamic Relations, or CARE, uh, very closely associated with the Muslim Brotherhood, according to reports, has become a major lobbyist within the United States. It is America's largest civil liberties group and has some 29 regional offices and chapters nationwide and in Canada. The council has engaged in several campaigns, uh, one of which was a series of short television spots which have aired nationwide throughout the U.S. Each commercial presents scene after scene of ethnically diverse, educated, and articulate Muslims stating that Islam is a religion of peace. And this strategy is ongoing. The organization of the Islamic Conference, the world's largest Islamic body made up of 57 Muslim nations, declared that Muslim investors must invest in the large media institutions of the world so that they have the ability to affect their policies. You see the law there? Affecting policies via their administrative boards. Now more than ever, we need a new Islamic media message that reaches all parts of the world. Muslims are utilizing media well. I saw a video uh, called Converting to Islam in Texas. it showed all-American football Texans, a football lover and son of a Baptist preacher from Texas, living and confessing why he became a Muslim. They assured the video audience that you can be an American and convert to Islam in Texas. Another way we see a significant spread of the Muslim agenda is in the university. We see Muslim governments which freely espouse hate within our borders, uh, gaining great influence in, uh, in my nation, and in, in the universities here, also in England and different parts of, of Europe and Western nations. At Harvard University, Georgetown, different places received Princeton $10 million for each of the schools. Sa- uh, Saudi Arabian Prince uh, Awalid ibn Talal raised, you know, gave funds funding the Islamic studies and Middle Eastern studies programs. And so the philanthropy of Saudi Arabia and funding Islamic studies programs in America is especially troubling, in part of uh, it found in the recent Freedom's House Center for Religious Freedom report. This highly respected human rights organization reported in, uh, gave a report entitled, quote, Saudi publications on hate ideology fill American mosques. More than 200 documents were found in a dozen U.S. mosques the report concluded that the Saudi Arabian propaganda examine reflects, quote, a totalitarian ideology of hatred that can incite to violence. And the fact that it is being mainstreamed within our borders through the efforts of foreign governments, namely Saudi Arabia, demands our urgent attention, end quote. Other universities have received grants to fund chairs or professors. Uh, when I was... Uh, uh, for example, at the University of London, where I studied at School of Oriental African Studies, they built an entire building that was the size of the rest of the university for two chairs at the university in the Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies departments. Uh, the chair of the Middle Eastern Studies Department at Harvard University was purchased by Saudi Arabia, and now that chair is being called the, quote, defender of the two holy mosque chair at Harvard University. 
<laughs> at an American university, the defender of the two holy mosque chair. The individual who fills that position is inevitably sympathetic with an Islamic worldview. Petrodollars are being allocated towards a clear agenda of Islamization of the West through the academic institutions. And these institutions were the ones looked to after 9-11. We quickly, we quickly learned that there were far too few scholars producing the answers we needed to understand the world today. The point of scholarship is not to obscure reality, but is to help people see more clearly the uh, discipline of their study. Perhaps one of the most significant ways that Islam spreads in any given society is through changing of laws and institutions. We see heavy political lobbying efforts, advocacy of hate crime laws throughout the Western world. In uh, the UK, Britain had a hate crime bill which came before Parliament which would silence any opposition to the Muslim faith. Essentially, the uh, threatening all evangelistic efforts with a prison sentence. After much prayer and lobbying by Christians and pastors and MPs, the bill was defeated by only one vote, Tony Blair's. And it was because he was stepping outside and he ceased to vote, and so, but otherwise it would have been passed. So it came very close. In Australia, is even farther ahead in hate crime laws, uh, year, uh, several years ago, a friend of mine, uh, Pastor Daniel Scott, uh, a renowned pastor and evangelist to Muslims, he fled his native country of Pakistan to save his life seeking refuge in Australia. He continued his ministry uh, there, uh, training in churches and teaching and so on. During one of the sessions where uh, he was sitting there quoting uh, the Quran and the Islamic traditions, much like I will be doing in our, in our uh, sessions in, in the future on Muhammad and the Quran. Uh, there were Muslim spies in the, in the audience who accused him of espousing hate. And his case ended up going to the Supreme Court after a lower court found him guilty of hate speech. In the verdict, he was to be forced to apologize to never speak against Islam again. This is a Christian in Australia. This process cost him nearly $750,000 in court fees, and no Christians were coming forward to support him or assist him with the expenses. The Muslims in this case were funded, uh, of course, by Islamic uh, states. Thankfully, uh, the Supreme Court overturned that case, and they actually were uh, able to, to win that, and Daniel Scott was not... Uh, uh, put in jail, and he can speak and teach freely. And in fact, Australia has moved away from that position in recent years, establishing their Australian identity and nation-state uh, uh, around, uh, around the Australian ethos. So we're thankful for that. As I mentioned earlier in my uh, home state in California, there was a hate crime bill, uh, which is SB 1234, which had been signed by uh, Governor Schwarzenegger which makes provisions for strict penalties for anyone deemed to say anything anti-Arab or anti-Islamic. The executive director of the Council of American Islamic Relations said that the California bill, uh, SB 1234, is welcomed by California Muslims. This legislation sends the message that hate crimes will not be tolerated in our state. Now, as evangelicals, of course, we are against any violence rooted in hate. But it should be a great concern to us that our country is beginning to be legislated against not only acts of violence, but also intentions and motives. In essence, in the United States, in my nation, we are beginning uh, to see legislation even against free speech itself. We see these kinds of laws uh, throughout Malaysia. Uh, we see the laws uh, in Muslim nations, but also in nations that are competing, for example, in Nigeria, up in the 11 or 12 states in northern Nigeria. There are uh, Sharia law that is established there against these kinds of things. And so there's a wrestling that's happening that's not just characteristic in the United States, but also that is characteristic of the wrestling that's going on throughout the world. We're not alone in the struggle. In Italy, 
The justice minister vehemently opposed the legal decision of a court in his country, which ruled against an author who criticized violent uh, natures of the Islamic faith. The justice minister's analysis was that in Europe, uh, we are seeing the birth of a movement that it is looking to silence those who don't follow a single mindset, within which it is forbidden to speak ill of Islam. Muslims in the West are demanding not only hate crime bills uh, catered towards protecting their ideology, but the establishment of other privileges. These include Sharia or Islamic law courts in Ontario. Uh, specifically, it's prominently opposed by Muslim women groups. They fear that the Islamic courts, despite their voluntary nature, will be used to repress women's rights. Is there really a role for the Sharia or a medieval and intolerant body of religious Islamic law to be enforced in the public life of the Western Christian nations? Some other privileges which uh, these Islamic groups are seeking include setting up a government advisory board uniquely for Muslims in America, permitting the Muslim-only quarters in America, setting aside bathing at a municipal swimming pool for women, only as in France, changing of the noise laws as a broadcast of the Adhan or the call to prayer as in Hamtrak, Michigan, allowing a prisoner to the right to avoid strip searches in New York State, punishing anti-Islamic views with court-mandated uh, mandated indoctrination by an Islamist in Canada. A law was just passed allowing schools to force students to participate in Muslim simulations in public school as part of their curriculum. So Daniel Pipes, one scholar, concludes that throughout the West, Muslims are making new and assertive demands and in some cases challenging the very premises of European and North American life. How are we to respond, he suggests, to offer full rights but turn down demands for special privileges? In the final analysis, uh, Pipe urges that governments enact principled and consistent policies indicating precisely which Muslim privileges are acceptable and why. And so the problem here is that these groups do not seem to be attempting to fit into the existing order of Western societies in which they operate, but they are aspiring to actually remake that society. And as Daniel Pipes uh, states, I agree, working within the system is fine, taking it over is not fine. However, for many radical Muslims and fundamentalist groups, their ideology does not allow for the possibility to work within the system. They want to recreate it. But we must keep in mind that there's no totally universal um, plan. There's no amongst all Muslims and all Muslim groups everywhere uh, of how to, quote, take over the world. Each organization and each movement needs to be considered and dealt with on its own terms. Whether it's Al-Qaeda or it's the Council of American Islamic Relations, each has its own methodology, the Muslim Brotherhood, the Ikhwan, all the, the Al-Mahajirun in London, all the different groups that have existed or will exist, each of them has their own approach and their own methodology as they proceed. However, the one common stream seems to be the universally held belief amongst radical Muslims or Islamists that Islam will dominate the world. And I believe this is, is possible if the church does not do something about it. You know, I'm deeply convinced that the tragic events of 9-11 and the persecution that has happened around the world has woke up the church to the challenge and the problem of Islam. It, in a sense, woke the church up out of a complacent slumber and while the church slept, literally for 1,400 years, Islam has been growing and expanding over these years. In the early 1900s, there was only 230 million Muslims uh, in the world. Less than a century later, we have some 1.6 billion Muslims. And if we do not realize the impact that Islam is making on our society, uh, the 
uh, declarations that we make, the constitutions, may one day, one day shift to the influence of submission in Islamic law. The problem is not Islam and all that Muslim radicals or moderates or whatever are doing to spread their faith. The problem is what the church is not doing. The church sends the fewest and most untrained missionaries to the Muslim world. We do not reach out to our Muslim neighbors. We do not pray and uh, evangelize our Muslim friends, making sure that each one has been reached and has a gospel witness happen. We do not give our resources to sort, uh, support Muslim outreach. We do not send our children and give them to the mission field to see the gospel go forth and the kingdom go forth in the world. There are many things that we do not do. And as a result, Islam has resurged while the church has laid dormant in its mission and nominal in many cases. On 9-11 and, and, and throughout the world since that time, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of examples of just how resurgent Islam has become in the world. Europe stands today as a monument of what the United States may become, and around the world we can see, uh, see the spread of Islam that's resurging in those nations. If we allow Christianity to decline, Islam will fill that vacuum. Like in Britain and in England, churches will be recycled into mosques. One author points out that wherever one goes in the Western world, one may hear the Muslim evangelists preaching that where Christianity has failed, Islam will rescue the nation from the mire of its drunkenness, its sexual permissiveness, political corruption, violence, blasphemy, and all the other sicknesses of an ailing, isolate, technocratic Christian West. Their evangelists say that while the West boozes its way to destruction, Islam offers a better and more wholesome way of life. How ironic that radical Muslims are trying to solve the issues of immorality in the West with bombs and evangelistic activity because we as Christians and those in the West have neglected to respond to the spiritual depravity of our culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church must pick up its mantle and address the challenge that the Lord has set before us. We must address radical Islam both on our shores and in the Muslim nations. Ultimately, I don't think that the United Nations or the U.S. military will be able to resolve the war on terror. I don't think any, any collective secular approach to it will work. They certainly can and should confront terrorists and injustice and so on. But it, ultimately, this is an ideological battle. It is a battle of ideas. It is a theological bat of, battle of gods. And you see, ideas have consequences. Ideas grow up. And the events of 9-11 began with an idea. The entire war on terror is a response to radical Islam's ideas about how to achieve their goals and establishing Islamic rule over the whole globe. Bombs and guns cannot kill ideas. This is a theology-based terrorism. It is spiritual in its nature, which can only be dismantled by confronting the theology and dealing with the spiritual and demonic spirits behind that ideology and confronting them. Diplomacy will not kill ideas either. No wonder Tony Blair, George Bush, Obama constantly remind us of the Quran as a scripture full of peace and tolerance. Tony Blair once explained that he read the Quran three times and he, all he saw in its pages was peace and nonviolence. But what else are they going to say to, uh, uh, as politicians who are responsible for the constituents, many of whom are Muslims? So the United Nations can't do it, and neither can politicians. Who, who better to confront the false ideals than zealous Christians who hold the truth of the gospel in love? The answer to the war on terror is not the United Nations. It's zealous evangelism and missions. But the reality is that the church has often turned its back on the evangelization of the Muslims, claiming it's too difficult, too dangerous, too costly, even impossible. But I suggest that the greatest problem in the world is not radical Islam, but nominal Christians. We need to repent of our nominalism and return to the first church model of actively evangelizing irregardless of how difficult it is in getting involved in the Great Commission. With faith and love, we can love our Muslim neighbors, seeking out the souls of Tarsus that become the Pauls, the best missionaries the world has ever seen, and evangelizing the Islamic community. 
these many of who could be the future Pauls of the world. Who knows, you may have a future Paul living next door to you, wherever you are in the world. The Apostle Paul asks us a series of powerful questions that I want you to think about. In Romans 10, 14, we read, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Or how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? Or how will they hear without a preacher? And I want to encourage you that if Muslims are reached with the gospel, they do come to Christ, they do come to Christ. Uh, A major Christian leader said that there are more Muslim youth coming to Christ now than in any other time in history if they hear the gospel the right way and they see it lived out in your life. In the country of Iran, in the last 25 years, there's been a quarter of a million Muslims to two million that have come to Christ. Why? Because they do not want what Islam has to offer. They want more. I've seen Muslims come to Christ in one conversation. I've seen Muslims come to Christ in two conversations. I've seen seven Muslims come to Christ in one week in conversations. And I spent an entire year with, uh, with Muslim friends at the university drinking coffee every, twice a week, and they never came to Christ. You just don't know how the Holy Spirit's going to move. But we can be responsible for what we are called to do. We must move away from the sidelines and look beyond our fears and restraints. We must look away from our fears and see the harvest fields are white. Our world is shouting to the church to wake up out of its slumber, to march as the army of God, armed with love, the truth, and boldness and strength of the gospel to suffer, to rescue those who are not only deceived, but who are deceiving countless and thousands of others in the world. The world is shouting, but are you, are you listening? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would lead us forth, that you would help us find our role in the Great Commission, that we can see how Islam is expanding in the world, and that we can fulfill your assignments that you call us to. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.